everyone, just a quick note before we jump into episode nine here. Episode nine is actually part one of a two-part conversation that Rachel Sass and I had with Isaac Rothschild about asset protection planning. The conversation was so good and so substantive that we wanted to get the entire thing to you. And the way to do that was to make two manageable pieces, part one, episode nine, and part two, episode 10. Episode 10 will come out in one week, and we hope that you enjoy both of them just as much as we did. Thanks. They show up in my office and just say, you can make all my debts disappear, right? And I can do that, but I'm also going to make a substantial amount of your unprotected assets disappear as well. <laughs> um, and, and so sometimes that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow. To episode nine of the Wealth and Law podcast. I'm your host, Brent Nelson, and I am joined as usual by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Brent? Yeah, we're doing well. We stayed up late. Well, we woke up late last night, I guess early this morning, to watch the meteor showers. I didn't even know that was out there. That, yeah. that there was one last night. There was one, yeah. We got we dragged everybody out of bed. We wrapped them in blankets and then we made them all get on the trampoline and some of them stayed awake. Actually, I think everybody actually saw at least a shooting star. I saw a bunch of them, but the kids, at least every kid saw one. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah. it was it was worth it? It was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool. That's good. That That's one of my goals someday is to be able to... Uh, calendar when there's going to be like a good meteor shower, just uh, some type of good show going on at night mm -hmm. and actually wake up. I say I'm going to do that. And for the past 20 something years, I've never done that. So someday. That's really cool. Um, you know what? If you go online and you, and you search like in YouTube, um, alarm, iPhone, how it will tell you how to <laughs> basically resolve that issue right there. Yeah, it's, it's not the alarm part. It's the shutting off the alarm, you know, about five. And, and, and not even just one alarm. It's, it's usually the problem is shutting off about 10 to 15 alarms that are usually spaced five to 10 minutes apart from each other. None, none of those alarms seem to actually work in, in fixing that problem. I see. <laughs> you, you, have a, you have a problem following instructions. Exactly, that's, yeah. That's what, yeah. It, that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Well, today we are talking about asset protection planning, and I didn't think there was any better person to talk to about asset protection planning than an actual lawyer who actually knows something about asset protection planning, and that is Isaac Rothschild. Isaac is a partner in the law firm Mesh Clark and Rothschild in Tucson, Arizona. He's been practicing for more than 10 years, and his practice is focused on business reorganizations, bankruptcy, and asset protection. And basically, he's the kind of lawyer that my mother wishes that I was, uh, because nobody can understand what I do, but everybody understands to a degree what Isaac does, because he actually goes to court sometimes. So welcome, Isaac. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brent. And uh, your mother would wish you were that kind of lawyer until she actually saw what I did every day. <laughs> really? <laughs> we won't hold it against you. No, no, please don't. Yeah. So I probably butchered the description of your practice. You want to fill that in any? Yeah, I mean, the main part of my practice and when people tend to reach out to me is when they are either the principal obligor on a loan 
or the guarantor on a loan and their bank has stopped working with them. And then we use our years of experience, the bankruptcy code, and uh, certain planning techniques to encourage the bank to work with them going forward or find better alternatives. So your clients, uh, typically businesses, individuals, something, a mix of the two? Primarily businesses, um, but closely held businesses. And so you're representing both the business interests and advising the individual on how to protect their own assets. Got it. Cool. Well, I know you're going to be helpful then. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I'm, I am certain that you will be. Well, I thought, uh, I thought today that we would talk about a few things, at least as broad topics and either of the two of you can jump in and tell me if you want to change this list. But I thought maybe we'd start by going through some asset protection basics, maybe get the estate planning view, which would be more me and Rachel, get the real lawyer view, which is more you, Isaac, and then talk about bankruptcy issues, talk about state law issues, transfer and fraud type issues, and then uh, maybe go through some of the common strategies that are employed, I would say offensively primarily offensively in asset protection planning, meaning like there's a client who's doing planning for themselves to try to create some asset protection for themselves or for somebody close to them. As a broad proposition, I think most estate planning lawyers who do any kind of asset protection and are being honest about it would say that asset protection planning at its root is creditor frustration planning, or it is planning meant to take assets that might be tempting for a creditor or easy for a creditor to get their hands on and then change those assets into assets that are less palatable or less interesting for the creditor in order to dissuade the creditor from wanting to spend all of their money to try to collect debts against the client who would be the, the debtor. And some of these techniques, I think, work. Some of them I think don't really work, but, and there's a pretty broad spectrum of service providers out there and professionals out there who practice in this area. But again, I think most practitioners who are advising clients in this area who are being honest will say that in the end, there is no actual asset protection. There's just this creditor frustration planning. And that's really the goal. There, there are usually other aspects to it, uh, other reasons for doing the planning. Sometimes there's tax planning involved. Sometimes there are there are real business concerns that are involved and you want to be able to layer in those non-creditor avoidance type uh, intents into the planning. But there is, at least as a part, this asset protection piece to the planning. So very typically, this includes setting up trusts, either for yourself or other people, that get the benefit of a spendthrift statute, which is a statute that says the creditors cannot access access the trust by getting a judgment and then executing the judgment against the trust. It might include using entities like LLCs or limited partnerships or limited liability partnerships or limited liability, limited partnerships or, you know, some, some variety of limited liability entity, because in many states, a creditor's ability to get a judgment against the owner of that entity is limited down to what's called a charging order, which you know a lot more about than I do, Isaac, but at least my uh, my understanding of it is that what the charging order, what the creditor gets is not a pile of cash. What the creditor gets is the ability to stand in the shoes of the debtor, who is 
was the owner of this entity interest and to stand there and wait until the entity distributes cash and then the creditor can receive that cash as if they were the debtor themselves. And of course, what usually happens is the entity immediately stops distributing cash or doesn't distribute too much cash if, <laughs> if the creditor doesn't have, any, have control over the entity. And so uh, a creditor might be dissuaded from wanting to wait around for years and years and years to maybe possibly get paid off if all they can get is a charging order. And then they might be more likely to settle the debts at uh, a more favorable rate for the debtor. And there's usually some combination of these techniques, but basically those are the building blocks of asset protection planning, at least from an estate planning perspective. I'm sure there are a lot of issues in there that you can poke holes in, Isaac. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think certainly even when you're being honest about it, it's not necessarily about creditor frustration so much as providing benefit to other people who you may prefer a little bit more than the creditor that's suing you, whether that's your spouse, your business partner, your children, or a creditor that's willing to lend you money in a time of need, as opposed to the creditor who's decided that they've had enough of you and they're bringing their lawsuit. And certainly being in a position where what you have is a charging order on an LLC is not even as good as standing in the shoes of the debtor. You're really just a passive investor at that point in time, where in a lot of times in an LLC type structure, an LLP type structure, the debtor is still in control of the business, determines who is getting paid, how much they're getting paid. Uh, they may reduce their own salary and, and hire some other people. They may start paying other bills directly and there are ways to go look at that but all of that is costing money fact intensive requires more time in court and has uncertain aspects of it which you know when you're facing a lawsuit you would rather have your business in an LLC rather than a corporation corporation they can attach your stock they can foreclose your stock and they can take the stock rights in most situations and in most states if you're an LLC all, all they ever become is someone that has a financial right in the business and that is a, a passive investor. And all of these things have issues as they come, usually the most important of which is timing. Every attorney has always told their client, you know, if you'd only come to me a little bit earlier, we would have been able to do something different for you. And that is no different in the asset protection world when business is good everything looks profitable. You can move your assets around freely and it is very hard to question those transfers. When you're in that time of economic uncertainty, those questions become a little, can become a little louder or those questions will resonate with the court more and keep the creditor in the game longer if they want to frustrate you in your business. If you've waited until after the lawsuit's been filed, it becomes even more difficult. And if you wait until after the judgment, because now is a good time to move all of my assets to my sister, you're only going to make more trouble for, for the person you're potentially trying to help. Yeah. And I guess maybe we should frame this out just a little bit. When we're talking about potential creditors, we're talking in a very broad fashion. That is creditors of many, many different varieties. So, you know, easy example is a lender in a business situation. Obviously, that's a potential creditor. Less visible or maybe maybe harder to spot creditors are things like a spouse or somebody else who has a property interest in your assets who maybe at, at the moment that you're doing something doesn't have a, a lawsuit against you or doesn't look like a lender, but because they have an interest that's affected by the thing that you do, uh, they, in essence, are a creditor. 
And so a lot of the rules that apply to creditors can apply to them as well, though they may get some special status under the law, like a spouse in community property may have some special rights that maybe an ordinary creditor wouldn't have. But I think it's just worth worth noting that when we're talking about creditors, it's really a very broad category. It's not just a lender in a in a typical business deal. It could be, say, a, a personal injury judgment creditor in the future. Again, it could be a spouse. It could be anybody else who has an interest in your property, like a co-tenant. All of these people potentially have claims against you once you start moving your assets around and putting them in different structures. And so the idea of asset protection planning is to create structures that are as protected from all of these different angles as possible. Uh, That is certainly one goal of asset protection, but it can be very hard to run a business or maintain a relationship when what you're really looking at, at them is as a potential creditor. And one of the first rules of asset protection is these are concerns. You need to be wary of them, but you also need to not let them dictate what would otherwise be good business decisions. Because simply by planning this way and dividing things a million different ways, so that this one partner can't potentially touch something over here, even though it otherwise would be interrelated to the business. You're not protecting your assets, you're lighting your assets on fire and just burning them because of inefficiencies. And so within that, you do need to recognize where you have opportunities to plan and make those divisions, but not necessarily let that ever be the driving force. Unless you see, I'm getting into business with this person and they've sued their last seven partners. But, you know, I really see this being a beneficial deal. So I'm going to go in eyes wide open. How do I protect everything else? Right. Um, and it, yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, you're never going to stop those lawsuits from being filed. But it is a question of how many barriers can you put up? And when will that person start thinking from an economic perspective and not a I've been wrong, so I'm burning you to the ground perspective? Yeah, that's a great point. If you if you allow asset protection to start driving your business decisions, I think you end up in a very otherworldly place uh, because your business structure starts to look so unconventional that number one, it's, it's unwieldy. It's very difficult to use. And number two, there's a possibility, at least my experience is there's a possibility in business transactions that the people that you're dealing with may, or the people that you may want to partner with in business may see your structure that's overly elaborate, and they may start asking questions of themselves about whether you're the right person to do business with. My experience is that, especially on the business side of things, when you start doing things that that look unconventional, you start to add perceived risk that then harms your business and makes it more difficult to find willing partners. There are, however, asset protection provisions just built into the law. So there, there are some provisions that are just built into the law automatically. So let me give you one. You, you may think of others, Isaac. So one is, at least in Arizona, if you own a life insurance policy for at least two years on your life and the beneficiaries are essentially close family members, then the proceeds and the cash value can be exempt from the claims of your creditors, right? Just automatically. There's there's a little exception if you if you were defrauding creditors in order to pay the premiums, then the cash value can be accessed by creditors. But as as a general proposition, like that's a that's a big carve out. It's just right in the law. 
And so you don't have to do any other planning other than having acquired one of those uh, policies and then held it long enough and named the right beneficiary and bam, you get the protection just because the law says so. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And and when you put things into separate legal entities or protected assets, like an insurance policy, like your retirement account, like the equity that builds up into your home, there's really two things that are looked at. One is the timing um, and the key dates usually are either the two years that you mentioned or even a potential four-year look back in certain situations. And then the other one is did you just regularly contribute? Because in a retirement account, if I regularly contribute, whether I regularly contribute once a year or I regularly contribute out of once a month, I don't, there's not a two year look back from when that becomes protected. If it's going into an ERISA account, I can put it in the month before. And as long as I've regularly been putting them in every month, it, that contribution is going to be protected. And, and just to, to clarify for anybody who's not sure, when we say like an ERISA plan, that would be a plan that's governed by, quote unquote, governed by ERISA, but basically is a plan that's set up by an employer, uh, like your 401ks or pension profit sharing plans or defined benefit plans. Yeah, those are ERISA plans. The Arizona statute also then extends beyond that to individual retirement accounts, Roth individual retirement accounts, inherited individual retirement accounts, which of course you wouldn't be making contributions to. And then the distributions out of those accounts, at least under the statute, those are supposed to be protected from creditor claims. I I think that may come with some limitations, but again, just just simply because the statute says it, you've got this kind of asset protection opportunity where let's say you're a highly compensated person in a company and you have the ability to participate in the ERISA plan of the company and you want to do asset protection, you don't need to do anything else to do quote unquote asset protection planning other than fully fund your ERISA plans. And then as long as you haven't tripped up on any other issues, the ERISA plan would be protected from claims of creditors. So I think most asset protection planning, again, when people are, are doing the planning and, and they're being honest about the way to do the planning, you almost always incorporate in these carve-outs that are in the statute that are easy, that don't require you to set up an elaborate structure to manufacture asset protection when the statute already gives it to you. Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. And I mean, every every state has their own exemptions. And if you go and look at the statutes in those states, they'll clearly define what those exemptions are. And they vary drastically from state to state. In Arizona, you're entitled to $150,000 of equity in your home. In Texas and Florida, that amount's unlimited. And so there are ways to plan around those. And those are absolutely the first basics to use. And a lot of times they have a lot of other benefits other than just asset protection, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, and, and that's an asset protection is just another added benefit so that, you know, when we have liabilities that arise, that doesn't automatically go put someone that's worked hard all their life into a, into a situation of welfare. And so that it creates the structure where entrepreneurs can, can fail, where you can be a serial entrepreneur, you can be successful, be protected going forward, start a new business and maybe not be successful there and still have a position where you're going to be able to support yourself. Yeah. That, and that's, that's it. That's the policy behind these carve outs in the statute. And, it, and I think they're sometimes underutilized 
but if somebody comes comes to me and I'm I would assume it's probably about the same for you too Isaac and they say I want to do some asset protection planning the first questions are well which of these things are you making use of because those are the easy cheapish things that they can do that don't require a lot of movement of assets that are already in their hands that can start to generate uh, potential claims for creditors, which you've alluded to, and I think we'll go into a lot more detail here in just a bit. But they're sort of the simple things. And even though they're simple and they don't require a lot of effort to do, they're actually really powerful things. And as you say, there's a policy to allow you to do it that's in the statute. Yeah, that's that's correct. And then, I mean, not only are there those, but really the first place you look in asset protection is, listen, you can play, you can pay me and I can change the way your financial world looks. I can change the way that the tax returns that you do are done and create a whole lot of headaches for you. Or you can go get some bigger insurance policies yeah. on your business, you know, on your, uh, uh, for yourself. And that that is, that's actually the absolute first question that we ask, especially when someone is not sitting there and they're worried. They're worried more about those potential liabilities like personal injury than they are, you know, I have this $10 million guarantee on my business. And while we're doing well now, one change um, to the business structure will wipe us out. And so you look at those two different things uh, to determine how to how to move forward. You know, one of the problems with the structures that we talked about and the exemptions that exist that are built in the state is they tend to be things that really don't get perfected from an asset protection uh, timeline for a two-year period of time, or they take time to build up like a retirement account. I don't get to take my my business that's worth $10 million and say, you know what, I really just want to put half that equity into my retirement account today. And therefore, it'll be protected tomorrow. And so that that's where you get into a little bit more of the creative planning. But again, the other part of that that, that I think we touched on earlier is when you're looking at asset protection, you're really balancing against two things. How protected is the asset on one side? I want it 100% protected. And on the other side is control and flexibility. I want to be able to use this asset when I need to, to be able to make investments in, in other places, to grow my business, to maneuver around. And the more control I have over an asset, the less protected it is. The more illiquid it is, uh, the more protected it tends to be versus I have a lot of liquidity. You know, that's the easiest thing for a creditor to grab. And so you're constantly trying to determine from the client's perspective, where on that, on that virtually infinite scale, are they going to feel the most comfortable and trying to find something, a device that works for them? I think in a lot of ways, especially in the asset protection arena, it is a pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered kind of scenario. And it's a lack of patience on the, on the part of the potential debtor that can undo the planning. So instead of making the, those consistent contributions to the ERISA plan that over time through very small little cuts are going to build up into a substantial account that will be protected from creditor claims, you know, they want to they want to do a big move up front. They want to move a bunch of assets into a trust or a partnership structure that'll quote unquote be set aside rather than doing the, the little things over a long period of time that if they're done over a long period of time, will have as much or more value and maybe even more protection than the big moves. 
And there's always a weighing of that balance in, in advising the client and, and doing the planning to figure out like, uh, where is it just right? You know, not too hot, not too cold. Well, one of the issues, of course, if you, if you do some of this planning, or if you're, I guess, if, if you don't do this planning and just a regular person who's a debtor, is that sometimes businesses fail, sometimes people's personal finances uh, take, a, take a tough turn. And we're certainly in an era right now where that's a strong possibility for a lot of people. And frankly, there's a lot of people in businesses that are failing economically through no fault of their own. But we have a process that, that deals with that. Uh, Isaac, and you know a lot more about it than I do. Yeah. So um, when I would make your mother proud and, and actually go to court, um, <laughs> I tend to go to the bank. I tend to I tend to go to the bankruptcy court, and that's where I do most of my practice. And when we talk about bankruptcy, there's really two types. Um, there's the reorganization where I'm going to take my debts and with court approval determine what the court and the bankruptcy code set up as the fair and equitable way to treat my creditors over a period of time where I'm going to contribute income and, and make sure that they receive more over a period of time than they would if they just liquidated me tomorrow. And that is where I spend the vast majority of my time because what we do is we take businesses that were successful at one point in time, had an issue that may or may not have been within the control of the owners and reorganize the business, whether it's through new capital infusions, whether it is through a different business model, whether it's through bringing in a new partner and take the debts that exist and stretch them out over a long period of time. And that long period of time is what creates deals. And we used to have a bankruptcy judge in Tucson who was famous for telling creditors, I'm the banker now. And when he said that, what he meant was, I'm gonna tell you what loan you're giving and what's fair here. And if you don't wanna be stretched for a seven or a 10 year period because you thought you were entitled to this now, you know, go cut your deal mm. elsewhere outside of my outside of the courtroom. And that does it is a substantial power because, you know, people, whether they're banks or otherwise, want to be the ones setting the decision for what the future is going to look like and being able to control as many aspects of that as they can. And they don't want to turn it up, turn it over to a judge who might be a little more sympathetic to failed businesses and a little more concerned about making sure that employees get paid than they are making sure that the bank's bottom line. And so, you know, within that, that's a very powerful tool. And that's the reorganization. That is not what most people think about when they think about banks. Mm -hmm. They think about a liquidation or they show up into my office and just say, you can make all my debts disappear, right? And I can do that, but I'm also going to make a substantial amount of your unprotected assets disappear as well. <laughs> um, and, and so sometimes that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow. And so when people come in, again, if they've come in earlier, you can kind of start looking at those planning techniques. What can we start regularly contributing to, to protect our asset? Where can we make a lump sum contribution now? And how much time do we need to create either by working with our creditors or fighting our putting up as many barriers as possible to our creditors and keeping our business afloat to be able to make sure that those assets are exempt. So I can protect those assets and wave the magic wand and make those debts disappear. 
And the key dates that are really important within that is there's a 90-day period, which is called, which is for your preferences, uh, to third-party creditors where you are paying back legitimate debt or you are pledging assets that otherwise would be subject to liquidation because they are free and clear to creditors that you know are going to work with you that are going to know that that asset has more value in your hands to them than it does in there. Um, and that's a 90-day period. You then have a one-year period for debts to insiders, partners in the business. And then traditionally, like you said, with your insurance policy, if I'm just going to take some of my money and make it go into an exempt asset, make it go into a different business that wouldn't be subject to my bankruptcy, I have a, there's a two-year look back there under the federal law, under the bankruptcy law, but each state then has its own look back period, which can be invoked in the bankruptcy court and in Arizona for what we call fraudulent transfers. That's a four-year look back period. When you go into that liquidation part of a bankruptcy, what you really lose is control. You're going to get to keep your exempt assets, what were properly planned for and fall within that exemption. But anything beyond that, there's going to be an independent third party that stands in your shoes and stands in your shoes almost as if they are the manager, not standing in your shoes as if they're just a passive investor to really go look at, do I have control over this asset? Can I use it for the benefit of either the debtor or their creditors? And if I have that ability, then that's if I can use it for the benefit of the debtor, I will often be able to use it for the benefit of the creditors, despite a spendthrift clause. Because if the debtor had unlimited use of it, then the trustee has unlimited use of it. And so that's an area that a lot of times we run into issues with clients where they've only talked to an estate planner who says, yeah, I have a trust. I have this in a spendthrift clause. My creditors can't get it and you're like, and you go and look at it and it says, well, either A, this is revocable or B, I see that you have unlimited discretion over this. And that is a perfectly acceptable and appropriate state plan for the vast majority of people because all they want to do is avoid probate. If you have an estate plan that avoids probate and it has asset protection language in it, that asset protection language is not is not what you paid for and you're getting what you paid for. Yeah. It doesn't help you if you personally have access to everything that's in the trust. You can swear up and down that your creditors can't gain access to the trust, but to your point, uh, when you go into bankruptcy and there's a bankruptcy trustee who then stands in your shoes, guess what? They get to do what you could do and they're they're going to do it. Yeah. So that's, I think there's, uh, there's some misconceptions, I think, among clients. I think what's happened really on the estate planning side is, is spendthrift clauses are in every trust that exists, uh, basically, even if the trust really doesn't provide any asset protection planning, at least during lifetime. And the the absence of a spendthrift trust, the minds of most estate planners, which basically sets the, the community standard, is almost malpractice, if not sanctionable. And so they're, they're in every document, even though uh, they don't really have an effect unless, to your point, the, the debtor does not have unfettered discretion to just claw money out of the trust or get rid of the trust at any moment that they want. Uh, one thing that you mentioned, Isaac, that, uh, that I wanted to make sure that I was clear on was the two-year look-back period. And when you talk about a look-back period, do you mean that 
say the bankruptcy trustee has the ability to look back two years, kind of setting aside the, the state law limit right now, but look back two years at transfers that you have made in the past and then unwind those transfers for the benefit of creditors? Uh, yes. And that two years from the date that you file your bankruptcy, not the date they decide to bring that action, which is a distinction between a state court lawsuit where that doesn't necessarily start the timing of that two-year look-back period and a bankruptcy point because they could have another two years to bring that lawsuit um, within the bankruptcy. Got it. And they will, you know, especially if you're sitting on a exempt asset that has substantially more than the rest of your estate and the rest of the way that you live. They will go and look back in that two or potentially even four year period of time. And depending on how clean the structure is, they may or may not have the ability to necessarily get there, but they will have the ability to say there is a lot of smoke around here and you're going to have to defend this. And as part of that, let's come to a resolution where I'm going to take some something less. Um, and that, you know, I mean, and, and that is, for a large part, that is the ultimate goal of asset protection, right? Is if I'm actually doing some planning and its primary purpose is to avoid future creditors, it's not not to pay my creditors any. It's just to reduce the numbers substantially. Yeah. So, so uh, for example, and I hear this example thrown at me or this hypothetical at least thrown at me from time to time by, cl- by clients. A uh, client says, well, you know, I'm in a business, but, you know, things are going okay. They've got okay in the past, but, you know, I you know, there's some things happening right now that I'm not real too sure of. I'm not too happy about. So I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to take some money out of the business and I'm going to put it in my brother's name or, you know, X's name, some other person's name. And I'm just going to kind of set that aside. And then, you know, if something happens, it's in their name. So that's not a problem. Right. Uh, I think I would say, and I'd be curious to hear what you would say, Isaac, uh, I would say, yeah, that probably is a problem uh, because you know what you're doing. Wink, wink is not going to get you through a court proceeding. I, you know, I guess it depends how good your wink is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what you basically said is, A, I hope your credibility is never on the line in anything that you have to go fight for. Because if this if this transfer gets the light of day, it's going to look like you're a bad act. That being said, if it's not ever going to, if it's if your credibility isn't going to be on the line, you know, sure, it's better to have it in your brother's hand than your hand if you owe people money. That being said, you've just invited those people to sue your brother. Right. And what we're really talking about now is the fraudulent transfer statutes and whether the what what you're talking about is whether is that actual fraud. Wink, wink, there's no consideration for the money I'm giving, but I think I can make a gift anyway. If you know that you're doing it with the intent to hinder, delay, or defraud your creditors, that's a four-year look-back period of time. So by the time they get back to the judgment, they'll go look over your bank statements for the last four years and they'll see a big chunk of money going to your brother and then they will see your brother. And that's what we call the traditional fraud, right? I'm doing this because I'm taking assets, I'm giving it for no consideration. The kind of second part of the fraudulent transfer statute uh, that exists in all the states is this idea of reasonably equivalent value, which goes against contract law number one, which is courts never question consideration. But for a fraudulent transfer, 
Court's will first asked, oh, I see that your brother did some work and went unpaid for a period of time. And then you decided to give him 50% of your, the 50% of your business. Was the work that he did really worth 50% of your business? If it was, then you're fine. And that's the end, that's the end of the inquiry. But that is a fact intensive. So people on both sides are going to spend money litigating that issue. Um, and if the answer to that question is no, then they go to the second part, which is, is that, did that transfer make you insolvent? Did, or did that transfer, or did that transfer leave you with an unreasonable amount of capital to do the business that you were doing? Or did you make that transfer knowing that you had just incurred a bunch of debt or were going to incur a lot of debt so that people couldn't reasonably rely on the structure of your business, couldn't rely on the financial statement that you previously gave them, whatever it is, those are the things that they will look back for the second part, which quite frankly, could not necessarily be entirely wink wink, right? There could be a legitimate debt there that just isn't ever liquidated. And so you have to work with the best way to document that at the time um, to show that you really are giving reasonable equivalent value given what could otherwise arise. Um, because when you are trying to make yourself unattractive to creditors or unattractive to your secured lender, you know, a uh, value of asset protection that, that I certainly preach to my clients is you need to make yourself the most valuable part of your business so that your creditors will work with you. If your assets are the most valuable piece of your business because they really are turnkey, your creditor has less incentive to work with you. So to the extent that you can have friendly creditors for legitimate debt that would make your business kind of get divided in multiple parts if third parties started getting control of it, you've really put yourself in a position to create leverage in paying your debts going forward. And one way to do it is if certain assets aren't secured, you pledge them to those creditors that see value in you. The other one is if you're in a position where you do have a blanket lien, over all your business, all over all of your assets. And you need to make an investment to maintain key parts of your business. Having someone lend you that money as purchase money for those key assets, they actually get a lien that is specific to those assets. And if I can come in and take that asset out of the business, um, air conditioning unit somewhere, a key, uh, another key function of a business, you know, whether it's servers or something else, and they can come take that out, all of a sudden you've not provided a turnkey business and there is extra value to everyone to keep you alive, keep you working and allowing you to work off your debt. I guess that, that gets a little bit back to your comment of uh, you want you want the creditor to believe that the assets are better off in your hand than in their hands. And if you bring that value personally, that kind of business value personally, whatever that is to the business, and you make yourself the most important component of the business, then a creditor is not going to view holding these assets as more valuable to them than you because they're they'll be able to believe in you as a business person as it was, or as a, as a future payor on debts, uh, because you'll be able to create the value that they won't be able to create on their own just by selling things in a fire sale. That's absolutely correct. One, uh, one thing you mentioned, Isaac, uh, that I just want to drill down a little bit on, uh, if it's okay with you, is, is this idea that if, if you make transfers 
And at the time that you made the transfer, uh, even if you didn't necessarily have the intent to defraud your creditors, but, but by making the transfer, you caused yourself to be insolvent or to not have enough assets to pay your reasonable debts, or you took on debt that then made you insolvent, that those transactions themselves can be viewed in, in the law as a fraud on your other creditors. And if your other creditors then sue you, say, within this four-year window, they could try to unwind the transaction that caused this event to happen, your insolvency or your inability to pay your debt. So they could take the asset that you moved away from you and bring it back so that it's available to satisfy a judgment that they might get against you. And I, I think a lot of people forget that is the case. And they, A, they forget that it's the case. They forget that it's a four-year period. And then they forget that the four-year period begins with some limited exceptions that we've kind of talked about. Every single time you make the transfer, every time you make a transfer, there's a new four-year period. So you could have a long string of four-year periods running if you're making lots of transactions, even though you may not be aware of it. And the way that the statute is applied, again, back to maybe my point about the, the broad nature of creditors, is that it gets applied in all kinds of contexts. Anytime somebody has a claim against you, a property claim against you, this statute can be kind of pulled out of the statute book and used against you. So an ex-spouse can use it against you if you, say, tried to transfer a, more than your share of community property interest to somebody else, just as well as a business creditor can use it against you if you take business assets and leverage them up and make yourself insolvent or transfer them away and make yourself insolvent. Yeah, I think that's fair. But when you're in that when you're in that world, there's two things. One, that you still have to clear that first time, which is the reasonably equivalent value. So when you talk about taking on new debt, that usually that new debt is associated with reasonably equivalent value. If someone just says, oh, by the way, now you owe me $200,000 because I did, you know, because I worked on your estate plan for an hour. Um, that I love that. I like that. You, you work on a contingency, right? If I do your estate plan, I just take a small percentage of it. Yeah, all the time. That's just my stockbroker. <laughs> um, the uh, within that, you have that first defense on that reasonably equivalent value, and and usually taking on new debt where there is um, contemporaneous consideration is going to be protected. The other part of it is once you're in that reasonably equivalent value situation, there are just a lot more defenses. There's a lot more of equitable protections for the person that you made the transfer to. To, uh, to those creditors to protect yourself or to protect them in those situations. And so those those aren't what we normally call big risks. They're not the big one transfer. If I'm making a series of transfers over a four-year period of time and they tend to, and I'm making them monthly, all of those transfers are going to be small. There's going to start being some repetition to them. If I have a business justification to them, all of those things are going to put up a higher barrier that someone's going to have to climb, even if there is a substantial asset protection avenue to it. And it goes back to the point that you raised right at the beginning, which is just one of the you know truisms of the law where pigs get fed. You do that regularly. Everyone's kind of on board. They they walked in, eyes wide open, saw that, didn't question it for however long. All of a sudden, all of those transfers seem a lot more protected than that one two-year lump sum 
that one big debt that came out of nowhere or large transfer. You know, the real the real place that people both want to what people want the law to be is if it's not in my hands, it's not really mine anymore. And that's where people get in trouble. And the further you get away from that, even if there's substantial asset protection benefits to those transfers, you're going to have created a pretty enormous shield to deal with almost any of those creditors. And, you know, you'll have to bring on more of a family law expert to discuss the spouse. Uh, I just deal with those after the spouse has gotten their judgment. (laughs) But um, as it relates to partners, as it relates to third party creditors, those those kind of techniques, while there is risk associated with them, there's probably other business justifications or other um, or there are other altruistic reasons that you're doing those type of activities that make them worth the risk that someone at some point in time is going to say, wait a second, wait a second, I want to go back after these four years and look at this. You know, that's that's a very hard, very expensive case for someone to put on. Yeah, it's, no, it's a great point. And I think people just have to remember that it's the it's the big the big transfers the big sweetheart deals that don't have equivalent value attached to them that tend to get you in trouble even though you didn't have a specific intent at the time, or at least that can be proven, that you were trying to hinder defraud or delay your creditors, those are the ones that look the most suspicious under this kind of alternative theory in the transfer state law, transfer for fraud statute with this four-year look-back period. There is one other look- Oh yeah, sorry. I would just say before we move on from that, Mm -hmm. you know, in times of uncertainty, we may find ourselves in right now. If I go look at comparative sales for a piece of real property right now, I'm looking back at a good market, right? right? And I can make an argument that says, oh yeah, no, I, I took that piece of property and I transferred it to someone, but that's not what made me insolvent. On the date I made that transfer, you go look at comparable sales for my other three pieces of property, and I thought I would be able to pay it back, pay back all my credit. And so that's not a fraudulent transfer. Those are, you know, those are both reasonable planning techniques so long as you have that other purpose. And that other purpose can be more altruistic than business space. But during these times of uncertainty, you know, there may be reasons to make those transfers now versus six months from now. Mm -hmm. And in six months, they may look like fraudulent transfers, but they don't look like that today because no one knows what our economy is going to look like in two months. All right. That is episode nine. We're going to pause there. That's part one of our two-part conversation with Isaac Rothschild hope you come back for episode 10, where we'll pick up where we left off and we'll polish off this conversation. I hope you're getting as much value out of it as we did. And I look to see you then. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.